0: Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpe, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpe. Today, we have a guest with us from Eastern Michigan University, Professor Jesse Kaufman. And we're going to talk about Russia, the Ukraine, Europe, what the past was like, where we sit today, and perhaps a little bit about the future. Welcome to the Common Bridge, Professor. So happy you're taking some time with me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: The Common Bridge, of course, Substack.com, TheCommonBridge.com, on most podcast outlets, YouTube TV, and on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app. Please join us, and particularly at Substack, we'd sure like to hear from you. We're looking for subscribers and guest columnists and guests. Professor Kaufman, really happy that you're with us today. Our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests, so if you don't mind, just maybe fill us in. Like, Start where'd you grow up, and, and what's been your career arc, and what are you up to today?
2: Sure. So uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, but I was kind of a bad kid. So um, I ended up joining the military uh, when I was 19 to sort of get myself straightened down. I joined the Navy and spent four years in the military and then um, got out and went to college and decided I never wanted to leave. So that's basically what I've done for the past 20 years. Um, I I went to community college first. In, uh, in Los Angeles. And then I got my undergraduate degree in European history at UCLA, and then went on to Stanford and got my PhD in modern European history, uh, main focus in German history, but um, on Germany and Eastern Europe. So I also studied uh, the Polish language in Central Europe, all of Central Europe during the 20th century. And uh, my first book was on the German military's occupation of Poland in the First World War. And I'm just now finishing a book on uh, basically all of Central Europe uh, from just before the First World War to just after.
1: Those are, first of all, fantastic credentials, prestigious institutions like UCLA and Stanford University. And you've been at Eastern Michigan University and on faculty for, I believe, 10 or 11 years now?
2: 11 very happy and fulfilling years.
1: Great. Did you have to learn to spell Ypsilanti before you uh, took the post?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did.
1: Well, well, we sure welcome you to Southeast Michigan. And you're doing research and teaching today. And give us a little bit about some of the things that occupy your time and you know, if there's a, such a thing as a typical year or a typical month.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm teaching four classes this semester. Um, Western Civilization, uh, 20th Century Germany, and a graduate class and uh, a class called uh, A Global History of Warfare. So that's my teaching load this semester. And um, like I said, struggling to, to finish this book. It's almost done. So try and spend a few hours every morning uh, finishing up. I'm on the last chapter, but I have to get to Europe to finish it to get some of the documents there. And that's just been a challenge. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a good and rewarding semester, but also a bit stressful and challenging. So...
1: Well, look, be real safe when you go there. And I I know that you know the lay of the land, so you will be, and you can converse in Polish and English and maybe some other languages as well. There's been so much discussion about the Ukraine. It's dominating our news cycles. It's wiping basically everything else off the front pages. We're recording this on March 19th. And so the war in the Ukraine seems to be up for grabs at this point, or the outcome's uncertain. But how the heck did we get here? in the first place. And take us as far back as you wish. Well, I don't know what a good starting point might be. Is it 1900? Or is it before that in the age of the Russian empire? What did it look like? And, and what's happened? What's brought us to this point?
2: Yeah, great question. So you do have to go back to the Russian empire. But if, if I had to pick a date when this started, it would be 1917. Uh, so for several centuries, the territory of what is now the country of Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. And uh, it wasn't until the country, the, the empire collapsed in 1917, when there were two revolutions, first a kind of uh, liberal reforming revolution, and then later that year, uh, the, you know, of course, the communist Bolshevik revolution. But with that first collapse in February 1917, many of the national movements in the Western Russian empire began to mobilize and to kind of find some new place for themselves within Um, At first within the empire, maybe in some kind of federation, but that would give them their own national, political and cultural life. And one of the first and best organized and uh, best supported that is among sort of grassroots support um, was in Ukraine. They formed a government called the Rada, which means council, and essentially told the central Russian authorities, look, we'll stay in Russia in some kind of federation. But um, we want to basically run our own affairs and we want to have this place called Ukraine that will be we'll have our own language, and our own education system and our own military and so on. And both of the Russian government said, no, there's no such thing as Ukraine. You're just a region of Russia. And the way I see this is it's a continuation of that. It's been going on since 1917.
1: So that that was one of the questions that I had. Are Ukrainians a distinct ethnicity or are they a distinct culture? You know, I know they have their own language. Would it be a parallel to several United States setting up or would it be more like Puerto Rico or uh, is there a parallel? How do they declare themselves Ukrainians versus Russians if there is such a thing?
2: That's that's an excellent question as well. And, um, you know, I can't think of a good comparison because it's it's just it's a kind of uniquely Central European issue in some ways. So there was for a long time people in that area that we call Ukraine now who consider themselves different from the Russians. But the word Ukrainian to, to, to designate these people didn't really start to be used until the late 1800s, say mid-1800s, when that became a kind of distinct um, ethnic and national identity. So it's complicated because there were people who were Ukrainians who saw themselves as, uh, you know, that's a kind of regional identity. They were essentially Russians. And most Russians continued to see them as simply Russians. The name of the region, the Russian Empire, they had called it, um, um, Little Russia, the little Russians, and a lot of the now, you know, in the 1800s, as Ukrainian poets and historians began to say, no, no, we're a distinct ethnicity, there were still Ukrainian elites who said, no, no, we're, you know, we're a branch of the Russians. Um, I, You know, now I certainly would say that they were, they are a distinct nation um, based on shared historical experiences, based on culture. But nonetheless, the line is still kind of, uh, I wouldn't say indistinct, but as you probably know, Zelensky's mother mother tongue is Russian.
1: I think that's an important distinction. So here we are in 1917, and the area known as Ukraine is part of the Russian empire. Right. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution occurs, and now this new nation emerges, but Ukraine says, we don't want to be Part of that nation. And of course, this is the time the map of Europe looked distinctly different with the Ottoman Empire and the alignment of countries much different. So, after that realignment, Ukraine is an independent country of, from Russia or still considered part of Russia, or some people think it's independent and some people think it's part of Russia.
2: So, beginning in 1917, they get in a, a, a war for their independence, that they have to fight on several fronts. They are fighting it against the Russian Bolsheviks. At the same time, they are fighting, it's a kind of civil war because they are fighting it against Ukrainian Bolsheviks who wanted to be part of the Soviet Union. And they are fighting it in the West against Poles who, who claim part of that territory um, as their own. So from basically 1917 to 1920, they have to fight this war. Um, and essentially, the Bolsheviks and the Communists are victorious. And in 1922, they create a Ukrainian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic. But there is no sovereign Ukrainian state until uh, I think it's 1990, when the Declaration of Sovereignty is that. You know that that created something that, while one can see as just, and I, I do think it was, it was also new. You know, it wasn't recreating something; it was creating something.
0: Thank you for listening or watching this segment of Richard Helpy's "The Common Bridge." On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only five dollars a month. At Substack.com, search for "The Common Bridge" and subscribe. Now back to Richard Helpy's "The Common Bridge."
1: I see. So they they fight the war. At the end of that, they become part of the USSR. They are a Soviet republic, and they're behind the Iron Curtain, but maintaining identity as a Soviet state. And how was the view from Moscow? Were they considered the Russian frontier, or were they considered a buffer against Western European and American military and such? How were they looked at following 1922?
2: Well, that's a great question. So um, again, a complicated answer because it changes. So one reason Putin, I think, despises, in some ways Lenin and the Bolsheviks is that Lenin and the Bolsheviks did recognize the Ukrainians as a distinct identity and said, yes, you can have a Ukrainian educational system. And they had their whole economic theories about what a nation is, and, you know, why they could do this and remain within good, you know, communist dogma. But interestingly, over the years and decades, that sort of sort of ebbed away, and the, the kind of pre revolutionary Russian great nationalist view of the Ukraine kind of sep- you know, seeped back in, uh, and they were once again widely perceived as simply a province of of Russia uh, and a kind of quasi nationality. Um, as far as a buffer zone, I mean, before and after the Second World War, that's all quite different, right? So, yes, I mean, certainly after the Second World War, um, you know, anything to the west of basically Moscow is going to be seen as a buffer against foreign invasions. I mean, nobody nobody suffered like the Soviets uh, in the Second World War. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of horror to go around, but um, the devastation that was unleashed on them between 41 and 45. So, yes, certainly after that. They're not going to let any buffers go that are under their control for sure.
1: So then we come to 1989, 1990, 1991, the uh, Berlin Wall falls, the Soviet Union collapses. And what hap- what becomes of Ukraine at that point?
2: So at that point, uh, the Ukraine issues, I believe it's called the Declaration on Sovereignty and like most of the rest of the Western um, Soviet Union, Western Russian empire declares its independence from, um, from the Soviet Union and essentially from, you know, from Russia. So it's at that point that it begins its existence as a kind of sovereign nation state. Although unlike even in Russia, they, a lot of the kind of pre 89 kind of, um, Soviet-type bureaucrats and kleptocrats stay in charge in Ukraine uh, which is where a lot of the discontent over the past 10-15 years has come from against against those people um but the key turning point i think that got us here today um was the signing of i think it's called the Budapest memorandum in 1994 when Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons um, in exchange for Russian and American guarantees of its territorial integrity. So that, you know, there was a, there were good reasons to do that at the time. We were worried that they would sell them to the highest bidder. But In right. retrospect, you realize that, you know, it's not going to encourage other countries to give up their nukes, what's happened to them.
1: So there was a number of the former Soviet states that were split up. I happened to have dinner with Senator Rudman during that time. Enjoyed the dinner conversation by telling me about What they were doing to try to locate the nukes because they they didn't know who had them. Right. And from that source and others, I kind of drew the perception that Russia was really a country, and I like your nomenclature, run by kleptocrats. Was Ukraine any better in terms of their anti corruption, or, or are they basically two peas in a pod here?
2: I think at the time they were, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, as they say. I don't think it was much better. I mean, I know that the. The state department had very little faith in the in the ruling elite then and the, you know i think that was probably well founded
1: and so now we're, we're kind of moving through ukraine's a, an independent country russia is trying to figure out what their future is we've course had the ukraine involved in, in our politics in a serious way and not to veer off to that but i think everybody knows the story about what was the then vice president now current president doing uh, what was his family members doing, and uh, you know, was Donald Trump's behavior appropriate? Uh, but that was really the thing that lit off a, an impeachment in in this country. So, so we're kind of coming in uh, somewhat as partisans, it seems, um, but reliably supportive of, of the Ukrainian government, or just um, opportunistically supportive of the Ukrainian government.
2: Uh, I think that uh, on the whole, the United States has. You know, shown itself to be a a supporter of, you know, these kind of post post-soviet uh, states that want to embrace market and and democratic reform. So, yeah, sure, there's some weirdness, right? but uh, but no, I think that um, I think our commitment to these countries is sincere. I, you know, it's wise to be cynical sometimes, but um, I think there's good reason for us. You know, we have a long tradition. You go back to the Cold War, right? Of supporting mm-hmm. these kinds of states, and certainly the way that we see, you know, the, some of the upheavals in Ukraine, in the past 15 years or so. I mean, those are definitely people who are looking at what's going on in say, "Bielorussia, or Russia itself," and saying, "You know what? We don't, we don't want that. Maybe we want to be in NATO. Maybe we don't, but we don't want to be some, you know, puppet state under this sort of uh, corrupt and repressive government." You know, I think the United States does. Uh, have a kind of moral investment in supporting countries like that.
1: And and of course, the Russians and the Soviets throughout their history, they've had a strong predilection to marching their armies across frontiers. And the experience of the Poles, the Czechs, the Hungarians, Finns from, from time to time, without that same kind of strong territorial claim, the Russians don't seem to be too bothered by pushing over a weaker adversary, if they think it'll benefit them. Is that a fair characterization? And please correct me if I'm wrong about any of that.
2: No, I think you're 100, 110% correct. I mean, I think they are, you know, perfectly willing to use violence, um, you know, to advance their interests. Um, you know, as the war, for example, the attack on Georgia showed, as, uh, you know, all sorts of examples, the historical ones that you cited. You know, it makes them makes them different from most of the rest of of Europe, right? I mean, you could argue about you know, don't we do the same thing, and that's fine. But you think about the context of Europe when you have a country like Germany, probably the most economically powerful in Europe. That frankly, you know, in a sense, has no military. Um, So you know that makes Russia's willingness to use this. It's armed force, you know, potentially much more, I think, destabilizing and threatening, I think.
1: And so they've demonstrated that in 2014, taking the Crimean Peninsula at that point, part of the Ukraine, if my understanding is correct. And now this year, deciding that they are going to invade. Any thoughts on what their objectives are and why now?
2: (laughs) Yeah, the why now question I have no idea. I mean, I don't know what his calculations were. Um, he, you know, I I really have no idea. You know, there's all this speculation in the in the media that he's in steroids or something, and you know, I don't know. Um, maybe he was anxious to try out his army because they've been undergoing all these reforms. As for the objectives, I mean, I it's it's creepy to listen to him talk about it because. You know, my main field is German history, and so I'm i I'm a little like skeptical skeptical of these kind of knee jerk attempts to always compare everyone and everything to Hitler and the Nazis. But I have to say, when you listen to Putin talk about Ukraine and how he envisions its future, it does remind me a bit of how Hitler talked about Poland on the eve of that invasion. That he in, in sense wants to not just get the government to surrender and give him some concessions, but he wants to essentially smash it as a functioning state and society and turn it into a kind of um, denationalized, almost sort of, uh, almost colonial type possession for the Russians. And that's why, you know, I hear on the news, well, they're engaged in talks right now. I mean, what are they going to talk about? Like, right. The Ukrainians are never going to say like, okay, we're going to be a denationalized vassal state. um, If that's really what the Russians want. So, and if they want guarantees, they'll never join NATO. This doesn't seem like a very rational way to have encouraged them to do that. but
1: So the objectives of the Russians are unclear other than this mysterious, I think Vladimir Putin's calling it a demilitarization and denazification.
2: Denazification, uh, right.
1: Yeah, where there are not Nazis, which is a kind of an interesting thing. But we've seen that in this country. We see people regularly accused of being Nazis. Maybe there's a parallel there. So any chance of Russia backing down? I don't know because, right, he's so
2: personally tied to this, Um, Putin is, he's kind of fused himself with the the future of Russia and and this invasion. So I don't know. I mean, one thing that might work in the favor of stability is, you know, I doubt many Russians know what's really going on because I know that the Russian state has really clamped down on the news. So maybe they can claim Things went great and they achieved some great things and and uh, Putin can declare victory or, <laughs> you know, that's the only way out I can see for him. What's the absolute best case scenario for him is he, you know, he conquers this part of Ukraine and it becomes a kind of permanent sort of northern Ireland, but but much larger, you know, right right there in Russia. So I, uh, you know, I don't know.
1: I don't know. The United States has led the world in putting crippling sanctions on Russia. Um, it's destroyed their stock market. It has seriously devalued the ruble. It is making it very hard for them to trade. They're looking for Russian oligarchs around the world and trying to put pressure there. At The response that we're seeing from the Russians are reaching out to China and India and Iran, perhaps, and saying, look, we're not going to dance to the tune of the United States. We're, they're not the puppet master. We're not the puppet." Any thoughts about that friction between the effects of the sanctions and Russia perhaps finding relief with this other set of allies?
2: Yeah, so uh, that's worrisome, of course. Um, somebody asked me last week if I thought the Chinese would help them, and I said no. So I don't. I don't know. It, now it's looking like maybe, right? I mean, I I got to think that China at this point has realized that he's made a huge strategic error. And do they really want to attach themselves to that? But yeah, you're right. I mean, everything's going to have unintended consequences, even sanctions and the sanctions as a whole. I mean, it's, I, you know, it's probably the right thing to do, although I'm always a little skeptical of them because I think they never hurt the people that you really want them to hurt. And, uh, you know, they never really change the kind of behavior that you want them to change. Um, so it seems to me, but, um, yeah, I mean, will it end the war? I, you know, I, I doubt it. So we'll see.
1: Well, I, th- I think about the uh, sieges that the Third Reich imposed on the Russians, you know, Leningrad and the horrible hardships they put up with. They don't seem to be the kind of people you can wear down. No, they have gotten their nose bloodied in conflicts, the finno russo Wars of the you know nineteen thirty nine nineteen forty four that they ended with massive force. Their foray into Afghanistan in 1980, that didn't work out so well for them or us or anyone else for that matter. So I'm trying to look for examples of where they've pulled back and what they think their vital interests are. Any thoughts on either of those two topics?
2: No, I agree with you 100% that, and in fact, I'd say one may be danger Of sanctions might be that um, you know right now it seems that most Russians don't aren't pleased about the war that it has started and the way it's going, but if over time as they begin to feel personally targeted by sanctions, you wonder if they will begin to see themselves as victims along with Putin. Mm -hmm. And this is something that sanctions throughout history have done, actually. So if I think of Germany after the First World War, or you know Cuba. They're able to blame all of their misery on us, right? You, you know, while you would have this great life, and I'm sorry you lost your job, and that your kids don't have enough to eat, but you know, these these terrible, the, the United States is, uh, you know, really strangling our economy. And I think the Russians, I could see them, as, you know, kind of rallying together. And um, as you said, they've they've certainly been through worse without giving up. So. Yeah, I don't
1: know. And frankly, we need their wheat and their barley and their oats and their rye. The oil and gas would be nice, but we've got other sources for that. So there would be, to your point, worldwide negative implications, not just for Russians, but literally around the world. So let's take a few minutes. Let's maybe speculate and not sure what date this episode is going to publish, but maybe a chance for us to look into our crystal ball here. So let's go down a couple of paths. How might this end? So behind door number one, Russia completes its military domination. They destroy the government of Ukraine. And now they've they're the proud owners of the Ukraine occupied by 200,000 Soviet foot soldiers. Is that a possible outcome? And now what happens?
2: I think that is a possible outcome. Uh, You know, I think that They, especially Putin, are now dead set on leveling Kiev, right? I think they really want to destroy the city. Uh, So that's a possible outcome, that they would destroy Kiev, take that bank of the river uh, from their east, declare victory, and then have a miserable, how many decades they try and you know, it's basically going to be an enormous Gaza Strip, but wealthier and more powerful You know, so they either they're going to end up weaker, I think. I mean, I think they already are weaker than they were when they started. But this is not, you know, it's it's going to be terrible for the Russian state. It's going to be terrible for the Russian economy. And to me, that is for them the best case scenario. I don't I don't you know, I don't see a, a better case for them.
1: And then under that scenario, they're probably fighting a guerrilla war against insurgents. They're on NATO's doorstep. Do they blame any further negative consequences? On NATO on Poland, and use that as justification to look to invade Poland or one of the Baltic states or take further military action to expand their boundaries
2: absolutely. You know, and I and I think that um, Poland maybe maybe not because it has a, a kind of odd history with the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. kind of a late acquisition. But the Baltic states, you know they never had any any sovereign existence outside of the Russian Empire until very recently. And uh, I could certainly see them eyeing that. And as you go down the path of worst case scenarios, I could see the Baltic states preemptively, you know, ethnic cleansing, ethnically cleansing their eastern borderlands that have Russian, you know, innocent Russian people living there. But look, hey, we saw in the Ukraine that this is the pretext that they use, that you're not treating the Russian, you know, minority with uh, with dignity and respect and you're not, you know, protecting their rights. So we need to come in. And protect them so yes and of course they will continue to blame nato right putin says all the time that uh, ukraine only wanted to join nato because they've been manipulated by the americans and by nato and this is you know we created this mess and us and these these ukrainian nazis that he sees everywhere
1: and so this this kind of gives rise to some of the things that we see in the american political debates um, that we have factions saying we need to do everything we can to fight on behalf of the Ukraine, because if we don't, we're going to be fighting in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, potentially. Do they still harbor ambitions around the former Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and perhaps up to the Nordic states into Finland, where they you know, claimed the Karelian Peninsula and didn't get everything they thought they they deserved? So there's that argument that we've got to fight him now because we've got to fight him later. Is there another argument that says, well, you know, Ukraine's always been part of them. It's not our fight. Let it play out. And, you know, we'll deal with any further uh, uh, expansion or f- further military aggression by Russia if and when it happens. Any speculation on that? I, and again, I know this is 100 percent speculation. None of us can know for sure.
2: Right. Uh, so I do think you, the position of Ukraine is is different. Because, again, going back to the 19th century, you know, when Putin says there's no such thing as a Ukrainian, that's got a long history in mm-hmm. Russia. Going back yeah. Yeah, 200 years or so, you know, even the name, you'll notice that sometimes people say the Ukraine. That is, in a sense, taking the Russian view of it because it, it essentially means the borderland. Whereas if you use it without the article, which it's interesting because there's no articles in Slavic languages. So it's deliberately introduced to, to mean the borderland. But if you say Ukraine, you're talking about a country. So far as I know, no, you know, no Russian, great Russian nationalists have ever said there's no such thing as an Estonian or a Latvian. Um, so I think that Ukraine may, may in fact be a unique case and as painful as it is, I mean, I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. I've gone there for conferences. I, I love, you know, I've gone to Kiev several times or Lviv, um, as emotionally searing as it is to watch, you know, the behind door number two, the real worst case scenario is nuclear war, right? Yes. Which, you know, hovers over all of this. And sometimes people will say, well, but nobody wants that. But I don't think you have to want it for it to happen. Someone could push that button with a great sense of regret, but they push it. So, you know, you, ha- you have to factor that in.
1: Last time we had a war like this in Europe, Uh, nuclear weapons were not available till the end of the war. And now the events transpiring at what could be the beginning of a broader conflict, you've gotten nuclear arms all over the place. In fact, the two largest uh, nuclear armed countries in the United States and Russia. Yeah, So a, a miscalculation someplace along the line could literally be the end of humankind. Yep. Agree. As sobering as that is, let's take another case. The Ukraine prevails. So through pressure from uh, internal domestic protests in Russia and through uh, vigorous military defense by Ukrainians, Russians generals come to Putin and say, look, we're just going to keep losing more people, more armaments. Just let them be. Is there a case where the Ukrainian government survives this. And if they do, what happens? Okay. So the first case was the Russian military stays and occupies. And this case would be the Ukraine's government stays intact and the the Russians pull back to the pre-invasion lines. Is that a possibility? And then what might the world look like and what might Russia do at that point?
2: Oh, I think it is a possibility, but I'm not sure... If the Ukrainian government survives this, I don't know if the current Russian government can also survive it. I think one or the other is going is going down. Um, I just don't see any other way. So, you know, hope I don't get on some list somewhere. But maybe those if those generals would add, you need to authorize this withdrawal or it's going to get, you know, <laughs> bad for you. Um, that would be in some ways from where we sit right now, it would probably be the best case scenario
1: well look we had that experience in vietnam where uh, commanders on the ground said you know i'm not following that order right. um, i'm not i'm not going to put my soldiers in harms way because i just don't believe in the objective and so that has happened in times of war i, mean, I had not considered that's a very interesting thing that would happen or potentially could happen would be the downfall of the Putin government. Now, when the Soviet Union fell, we had one very aged leader after another come into office and be there a few months and then die. Is there a succession plan if Vladimir Putin... If his government comes down, or he flees the country, or perishes in some way,
2: I have no idea. I, I, I would guess that the army would take control. That would be my guess. Although if he has handpicked acolytes to succeed him, although sometimes autocrats don't like to do that because uh, you know they're worried these acolytes want to get a head start and sort of shove them out of the way. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's like trying to make sense of North Korea or something. What's going on? They, they keep a, they keep a tight lid on
1: it. So when we think about this three scenarios: Russia completes the invasion and the subsequent uh, occupation of Ukraine. Ukraine is successful at repelling them, which would most likely lead to the collapse of the Putin government. The third option of uh, NATO or a NATO country intervening, which would set off full-scale war and possible nuclear destruction. Any other scenarios that we're missing here that how this may turn out?
2: A kind of variation on the second one might be that the the Russian forces, in a sense what you were talking about, begin to disintegrate the ones on the ground in Ukraine begin to disintegrate um under the what are obviously very high losses, and you know the morale does not seem good, so even if the the Ukrainians don't drive them all the way back, they've inflicted enough pain by now that you know it's at least possible, it seems to me, that those Russian forces would, would es- essentially mutiny and disintegrate. Other other outcomes? I have no idea. I mean, it doesn't seem to be any good ones, really.
1: Well, th- this has been intriguing, and I can understand why you've devoted your professional life. I'm really intrigued the fact that you're going to uh, Europe and going to get original documents. Great. Uh, there's far too little of that. People are reporting the news, never leave their offices, and kind of filling out a narrative. So, really appreciate Jesse all the great work that you're doing. As we move to finish up today, is there anything that we didn't talk about that perhaps we should have covered?
2: You know, I don't know. I I think if I understand your mission correctly, like to to have nonpartisan, rational discussions, right? I, I wish that weren't so hard here in the U.S. That that some of the rhetoric around this has been. Odd on both sides to me. I mean, you you can't this idea, well, you know, i need to just set up a no-fly zone. That is a declaration of war on Russia, okay?
0: Yeah.
2: That, that's not going to work. You need to go all in. You have, you know, it's 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 you can't have a little bit of a war. That's a that's a huge mistake. At the same time, you know, people on the other side, what I usually consider my side, are repeating things that Putin says. I mean, Uh, Steve Bannon said, there's no such thing as Ukraine. The Clintons created it, you know, and that's crazy. And uh, Mm. other people will focus on the, you know, there is a very small neo-Nazi movement. And I think that they do that to make themselves feel a little bit less bad about the decision we're making, which, which is strategically and morally defensible. We should not get directly involved, but let's face up to the fact what that means. You know, a lot of innocent people are being killed and it's, it's. We shouldn't be able to sleep easily at night either way. You know, either of these things, this is a very difficult situation. It's not an excuse for anybody to feel good about themselves about anything, frankly.
1: i in strong agreement with your assessment of the horrible political and news reporting situation we find ourselves in the United States. I recently authored a column called Advice to Republicans, Advice to Democrats, and talked about how the pre-packaged narratives are really splintering our country and making us more inclined to, to make international mistakes. Um, and I hope that people will go read that on the Common Bridge at Substack, substack substack.com, just enter uh, the Common Bridge. Professor, you have been a great guest. It has been so fulfilling to hear what you have to say, to know that there are people like you that have the long view, that have the perspective, that perhaps might be called on to advise those in power. Uh, I encourage you to keep Up with your work. And I hope that we can maintain a dialogue as the Common Bridge's audience expands. Any closing thoughts at all for the audience of the Common Bridge?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, there's no easy answers. There's, um, you know, it's enormously complicated. And what's going to happen in the future? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. And if I could put in one plug for a journalist who I think has done absolute first rate reporting, I had no connection to him. I don't I don't know I get nothing for this, but his name is Yaroslav, I think Timovarov is his last name. He's the Wall Street Journal's foreign affairs reporter. He's been doing front page reporting from the ground. Absolutely superb. Absolutely superb. So I hope everybody has a look at that.
1: We will make sure that we highlight that on our websites and through Substack and of course on this interview because that's what we're looking for. Breaking the narratives and asking those that we elect to Behave better, asking those that report to us to do a better job. We've been talking today with Professor Jesse Kaufman from Eastern Michigan University, his PhD from Stanford University, a lifelong scholar on Europe, uh, sharing with us today the past and the present, and with a little look into the future of the situation in Ukraine. So for the listeners, the viewers, and the readers of The Common Bridge, thank you for joining us on Substack and Mission Control Radio on the Radio Garden app, most podcast outlets, and YouTube TV.
0: And so for The Common Bridge,
1: this is Rich Helpies signing
0: off. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on substack.com where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.